This is Waterworks, an aquatic history of Milwaukee. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Chris. All right. Why don't you go ahead and start by introducing yourself? So I'm Elizabeth Loomer, and this semester I have been studying Wisconsin indigenous relationships to water. Great. And I'm Chris Cantwell, and we are sitting in my office with masks on, talking about this season of Waterworks. So what do you have for us on the show today? In my research over this semester about this topic, I came across a poem that I think would be the perfect way to start out our discussion today. All right. Why don't you go ahead and read it for us? So that's the problem. I would love to read it, but it is actually in Ojibwe, which is not a language I'm very familiar with. I did have the opportunity to speak to the author of the poem, and she actually did a reading for us. So I would love to have her read it for us today. Great. Let's do it. Nijo saguns gema niso saguns daso bibunagadun. Two or three thousand years after the minerals melted, ice rained for a while, and then cracks and holes appeared. Streams became a river casually, pouring seasons onto the land. Windigos were chased away by the blink of a sky moose's eye. Lives were entwined along the Mississippi. Nugadenanit, Vimadazinjin, Mizue, Zibing. So that poem was written and read by Margaret Noden. Wow, that's pretty great. Can you tell me a little bit more what it's about? When I hear this poem, it makes me realize my idea of time might not be broad enough. And the way Margaret explains it, it gives us the opportunity to uh, shift into a different understanding. There are a lot of ways that I identify with places who are close to the water, close to the Great Lakes, or close to the sea, and I try to honor all of my ancestors in the way they might have lived in or around the water. In English, my name is Margaret Newton, and I'm currently the Associate Dean for Humanities in the College of Letters and Science. The poem is intended to be a reminder of millennial thinking, the way a river might think of its journey and the way it changes over time. Those are very slow changes, and humans often think in terms of their own generations or their relatively short lives on Earth. If we can be encouraged to think across wider spans of time, I think we might understand resiliency differently and sustainability in other ways. Water might mean something across a larger landscape than it does to us now, something more than a resource. That's amazing because it kind of completely reframes the conversations we have around water and climate and conservation. Because what Margaret's essentially saying is that instead of thinking about, you know, how many degrees we need to stop the earth from rising within a certain amount of time, we need to stop thinking about our own time and thinking about the, the rhythms of life that the world itself lives by. I know. And 
what's amazing is Margaret's idea of millennia thinking is actually something that's already been around for thousands of years within the Wisconsin indigenous communities. So that's the story I want to tell you today. Great. Well, take it away. Before the pilgrims, before that Italian explorer who did not discover the new world, before Amerigo Vespucci put his name to the continent, the indigenous peoples of the Great Lakes region already understood the importance of protecting and caring for the world around them. Milwaukee, the city, and the lands around it were home to many different peoples before the first fur traders and missionaries sailed into its bay. The Potawatomi. Ho-chunk. The Ho-chunk. The Machetau. The Menominee. The Oneida. And later also, Anishinaabe. The Ojibwe. Considered this land where the three rivers meet home. Most history of this area is taken from journals and letters of early Europeans. But what about the native peoples, their oral histories, and their own perspectives on this land? For that, we need to have a conversation with someone who has a much deeper connection than those of us who only began calling this area home in the late 1800s. Bonjour, Nathan Ndeshnikaz. Makwadote Ninonjiba Waswagni Ninda Minawake. My name is Nathan. I am from the Bear Clan. My family originates from... Uh, Lac de Flambeau, Wisconsin. I currently reside in Milwaukee. Nathan Brew is a PhD candidate in the history department here at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, where he is focusing on sugar maples and the significance they play in Wisconsin's native communities, particularly how they fit into modern communities and the effect on the environment. He also teaches the Anishinaabe ethnobotany class that looks at indigenous and invasive plants in the Anishinaabe culture, making him the person to talk to about what the Milwaukee area would have looked like pre-contact. To understand water, we need to take a look at the elements around it. So if we're looking at Milwaukee, the bay would have been filled with uh, wild rice beds around Jones Island, which is now the city waste management. The valley where the Potawatomi Casino is, that would have been um, more swamplands with more indigenous plant life. And then up on the cliffs there and going down the three rivers, you would have saw more vegetation, more trees run into some sugar groves where they would have harvested some maple syrup during the springtime. And you would have seen this this area lively with activity. Three different nations here would have been in this area utilizing and looking after the land. This area we know today as Milwaukee and the entire region surrounding the Great Lakes was a land of abundance. As native nations from the east migrated to these rich waters, the leaders of those nations, or confederacies as they later became known, brokered an understanding of respect for the resources that they shared, all of which taking place 479 years before the landing of the Mayflower. In 1141 AD, the one dish, one spoon was signed between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabek. So the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is the 
is also known as the Iroquois Confederacy, which is made up of the Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, Onondaga, and Mohawk nations. And the Anishinaabe Confederacy is the Ojibwa, Odawa, Potawatomi, Missinigua, and the Algonquian nations. This was an understanding that the dish represents the land that is to be shared peacefully and the spoon represents the individuals living on it, using the resources of the land in a spirit of mutual cooperation. So basically what this is understanding is that we only have a limited supply of food and that is on this land and we need to take care of it not just for our generation but for generations to come. This larger millennial thinking of giving agency to the water and to the plants are to make sure their voices are heard. Native peoples look at these things as gifts, not commodities, always being sure to leave a gift in thanks. It was understood, never take the first or the last to make sure there was enough for all creatures. This was so central to the fabric of Native communities that this commitment to care for resources predates the great law of peace which sections of the United States Constitution are modeled after. Over the next four centuries, these beliefs would be scorned and outlawed with broken treaties, forced assimilation, and massacre. When the first non-natives crossed Gitchigumi, the Great Lakes, landing in Green Bay in 1634, the Native world would never be the same. Nathan has painted for us a picture of what this area would have looked like. But to tell the story of water, the indigenous people's relationships to it, and how it connects to the city of Milwaukee, we need to highlight some larger elements that span from the first contact in 1634 to present day. Without the context of these events, appointments, and laws, people will continue to simplify and underestimate the significance these historic acts play to the story of water not just locally, but nationally. During the 17th and 18th centuries, as more European settlers came into the territories surrounding the Great Lakes, this agency towards the environment was pushed aside. Wars were fought against Native peoples, using Native peoples, against other Europeans, and ultimately against nature itself. In the effort to claim, modernize, and tame these wild places, this virgin wilderness, the troublesome Indians needed to go. Early in the 19th century, a special office was created under the Department of War, the Indian Office, to deal with the Indian problem. This eventually became the Bureau of Indian Affairs we know today. Jackson's idea of a solution was the 1830 Indian Removal Act, which relocated all Native peoples across the Mississippi River to make room for European settlers in the United States' expansion westward to lay claim to their manifest destiny. The last true indigenous inhabitants of Milwaukee were forcibly removed in 1838. It's hard to imagine the world that Nathan and Margaret describe when we look at the city of Milwaukee today. The city has the largest concentration of Native peoples in the state, and while this area may never look the same with abundant sugar bushes and wild rice beds filling the harbor, there is an example a little further north that provides us a glimpse of how this area and those like it along the shores of the Great Lakes looked and functioned pre-contact. It also gives hope of how these regions could again function not as standalone features, but as part of a larger system that could be healed. 
So let's head north to have a conversation with someone who works every day to protect and educate about the connectivity of water to the world around them. Buju Jungle Day Boanikwe Indigenakaz, Waswagading and Dunjaba Magizinundim. Hello, my name is Stronghearted Lakota Woman or Celeste Hawkins. I am from the Eagle Clan and originally from Lacto Flambeau. I am an enrolled member of the Ogallala Lakota Nation in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, but most of my family lives in Lacto Flambeau. Celeste Hawkins is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point College of Natural Resources. She is the Water Resource Program Manager and Aquatic Ecologist for the Lacta Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians under the nation's Tribal Resource Department. She was also my roommate when we were undergrads. What I do is similar to what the DNR does for the state under the, their own water program. So we do a lot of like water quality testing, um, aquatic plant surveys. We do a lot of permits, monitor the regulations, um, interact with the community by you know, answering their questions and concerns about their own water quality. Our main goal is to provide these water resources to the uh, tribal members of this community and for other community members. Just as those events mentioned earlier, life for Native peoples continued to change rapidly and drastically, including failed attempts of extermination, leading to the Indian Appropriation Act of 1851, creating the reservation system. The General Indian Allotment Act of 1887 was put in place, systematically privatizing and displacing Native nations to benefit white settlers in acquiring land not just for farms, but that held natural resources such as timber, copper, and lead. In 1934, as part of the New Deal initiative, Roosevelt passed the Indian Reorganization Act. This yet again allowed the government to claim more lands in the false exchange of giving control and sovereignty over reservation lands, establishing tribal corporations and independent tribal nations. This was done to make it seem that the government was working with and for the betterment of Native nations, who never actually really saw themselves under the rule of the United States, but always viewed themselves as independent. The only options were to adopt a Western-style government or be erased. Organizations such as the Lacta Flambeau Tribal Natural Resource Department are proof of resiliency and dedication to an indigenous worldview. I like to think that we're all in a circle sitting down and talking together, all these programs talking together to decide what's going to be the best way to go for our tribal members in order to protect them natural resources because ultimately what we have on this reservation that was forced onto by the United States government we cannot move our reservation. So what we have now is what we're going to have for the future. Even when it was made illegal for Native peoples to practice their beliefs and speak their own languages, this worldview of millennial thinking was always present, even if it was not allowed to be shared. Once this law was finally repealed in 1979 by the passing of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, these ideas of connection, conservation, and sustainability that Nathan identified from One Dish, One Spoon became more associated with non-Indigenous activism. Celeste works with both tribal and federal agencies to heal and protect resources, something many Euro-Americans believe is a modern environmental process. But 
This is yet another example of a colonizing power claiming and rebranding indigenous ideology as their own. This worldview has been around and practiced much longer by the indigenous peoples of the New World than modern policies make out. EPA has been recently, within the past three years, been focusing on the watershed aspect of protecting water. But we've been doing that since probably day one of our past, thinking about watershed. We have four watersheds with the reservation we try to protect. So the Lac Flambeau Tribal Water Resource Program takes care of 260 lakes, 71 miles of rivers and streams, 24,000 acres of wetlands within the exterior boundaries of the Lac Flambeau Reservation. While the Water Resource Program is small, consisting of only two people, the community involvement plays a key role in spreading knowledge and working to educate the public, both on and off the reservation. Whether it is working with local schools, training interns, or hosting community events, they have a big job to do, taking care of the limited resources within the federally appointed bounds of the reservation. It can be a challenge, but it can also be very rewarding. It's actually more of like a painting, you know, that's blended. It has a nice blend or a sunset. You know, you have like oranges, reds, yellows. There's no hard line between them. There's there's gradations between the two colors. That's how natural resource is. It's forestry moving into water, water flowing into wildlife, and then all together blending to make one beautiful picture. As we travel back south to Milwaukee, we carry with us the images of what healing and indigenous water conservation methods could do, not just for the city's blue spaces, but for those that traditionally call this area home. As we look to the future of water in this city, what we need are those who understand and have the connection to this worldview, this idea of looking not just for the now, but for what will come. Good day. My name is Wendy Lady. I also go by Lacey Goodrich. Lacey Goodrich is an undergrad student here at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, studying conservation and environmental studies. Her focus is on water resources, ichthyology, and herpetology. She is also a creative content intern for the Forest County Potawatomi, assisting in the language revitalization program. Working towards educating others on this millennial thinking, Margaret introduced us to at the top of the episode. Well, as a Native, water is life. It is one of the most important things in our world. And as a Native student, I've learned a lot about how we as people only exist on this planet because of the planet. So the world around us would go on without us. Humans need the water, we need the air, we need the plants and the animals to survive. And without it, we just simply wouldn't exist. As a Native woman, there's this thing called the seven generation, where the way that I want to live my life is in a way that is going to positively impact the next seven generations. I'm not thinking about just myself and what can I do today, but how it's going to affect my generations. And for me, fresh water is one of the most important ways to do that. As a Native student, Lacey represents the next generation in a long tradition of agency and respect for our natural resources. With new contaminants and changing climate, her work will play an important part in how this agency of resources will adapt and continue into the future. As Lacey talks about the future, it's not just the world's future that she's thinking of, but of those seven generations that have come before her 
and will continue after her. She's thinking of people like her son. One of my favorite things about walking my kid to and from school is that we get to have these fun conversations. And the other day he goes, so what do you want to do when you grow up? (laughs) I love you, kiddo. Yes, I'm not fully grown up. I'm a grown up, but not fully grown up. My answer was, you know, I'm studying water resources and I'm studying fish and frogs and amphibians and I absolutely love them. I would love to do more protection for the wetlands and do more conservation in order to keep what we have here and improve it in the best way that I know how. Anything in our ecosystem, if it disappears, has an impact on more than just that species. There is a ripple effect. And for me, I want to be able to learn about it and teach more people about it and to protect that part of the ecosystem, something that needs to have more research done on it. Awareness, research, and education are key components to the future of water conservation for not just Milwaukee, but all people. Even today, with our understanding of natural resources and the environment, we continue to make policy choices that negatively affect the resources we have. Margaret introduced us to the concept of millennial thinking. This way of viewing the world around us has the potential to lead us towards a more hopeful future. As Nathan studies the past with its modern effects, Celeste works to care for what is here, but always looking forward, and Lacey trains for the future. We must remember, in this busy world of action and innovation, sometimes all we need to do is breathe and listen to those who came before us. And maybe, just maybe, we will leave something better for our seven generations people talk about how dirty the Milwaukee River is and I'm like I know and it hurts my soul that it's like this and we are the reason that it is and I just really I really really want to do something meaningful with my life and I think that considering the importance of water that is the most meaningful thing that I can do for our world. Elizabeth Loomer is getting her master's degree in public history and museum studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. A Yankee ship came down the river Blow, boys, blow A Yankee ship came down the river, blow boys, bonnie boys, blow. Well, our show today was produced by Elizabeth Loomer with help from myself and the students of History and New Media at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. This episode featured material from the Lac de Flambeau Water Resource Program, the Encyclopedia Milwaukee, Charles Brown's Archaeological History of Milwaukee, and Nancy Ostreich-Lurie's Indian Nations of Wisconsin, as well as material from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Archive and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. Music and sound effects for this episode are by the Blue Dot Sessions and from freesound.org, while our concluding song is A Yankee Ship Came Down the River and comes from the Wisconsin Folk Song Collection at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thanks this week go out to interviewees Margaret Noden, Nathan Briou, Celeste Hawkins, and Lacey Goodrich. Special thanks also to Micah, Kelsey, and Shelby for letting Elizabeth verbally process with them. And an extra special thanks to Ben Barbera at the Milwaukee County Historical Society, whose exhibit, Milwaukee, Where the Waters Meet, 
inspired this season. Milwaukee Where the Waters Meet is currently on display at the Milwaukee County Historical Society through April 23, 2022. Waterworks is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. For more information about the show, including photographs and documents from the era, check out milwaukeehistory.net slash podcast. And thanks for listening. And what do you think we had for breakfast? Blow, boys, blow. The starboard side of an old sou'wester. Blow, boys, bonnie boys, blow.